This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. What does Judaism say about in vitro fertilization? What does Judaism say after the Holocaust, which was another major crisis, is another? You know, how can Judaism be open and loving and affirming to trans folks? So it's always an evolving, growing conversation. And there are always going to be people who are on the more radical edge. And there are always going to be people holding down for tradition. But I think that's the process, right? It's a filtering process. And you try to, every generation tries to figure out what they've inherited and how they can pass it forward, knowing what they know today to the next generation with integrity. Everybody offers something new and every generation takes something off the table, right? And so our work now is to try to figure out how to bring light and love and connection to people. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. I'm so excited for the conversation that we're going to play for you today that we had with Rabbi Danya Rutenberg. She's an author of many books. She's also been featured in Newsweek, Chicago Tribune, New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Atlantic, a bunch of places. And uh, she's a great follow on Twitter. And we have the links to all of her stuff and her social um, in the show notes. So go check that out. Yeah, it was a great conversation. I think fantastic, especially for our listeners of our show. And it even ties in with some of the conversations we've been having recently, both with the Levitical system and atonement and forgiveness and what is all that. And even some of the conversations we've had on Utterly Heretical related to Botham John and the way forgiveness is used in Christian culture. Uh, and then we even ended the conversation, I think, with this great bit talking about the role of texts and holding on to texts to conserve sort of what was old and moving forward into embracing newness and how we balance that tension and how Judaism has swam in that tension for a long time. Yeah, and if you're a new listener to Almost Heretical, welcome. We're happy that you are checking it out. What we do on this show is rethink Western Christianity. Tim and myself, I'm Nate, we were pastors and we started <laughs> for a lot of reasons rethinking the whole thing and that's what we do on the show. So if you are on that journey as well, welcome, welcome to this journey. We hope that what we do here is is helpful in some way. Okay, so without further ado, here is the wonderful conversation that we had with Rabbi Danya. Okay, so we reached out uh Originally, so we want to talk to you about forgiveness. Uh, saw a thread on Twitter that uh, really appreciated from you, and it's something Nate and I have talked a little bit about. And uh, the, for the two of us, the whole public scene with Botham John and that sort of courthouse thing was sort of triggering to to what forgiveness has been in Christian American subculture. So it, it felt to me like a perfect encapsulation of of a binary mm. where you had sort of two things set next to each other. One was a cry for justice and one was a, a personal decision to forgive another person. And more of what we noticed was what was very typical of our experience in, in Christian culture was one of those things, the act of forgiveness, was not only elevated above the other one, but actually in many situations used to dismiss that cry for justice, uh, rather than trying to hold those two things as 
both parts of the human experience that we need to be understanding, right? So is that thing, and I saw some people refer to that as the fetishization of forgiveness in Christian culture, which felt like a really apt description of sort of this broader trend that we had uh, observed and experienced. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right on. Um, And I mean, there's so many pieces of this because what was a deeply powerful, deeply personal, deeply individual choice of this man to hug the woman who killed his brother, right? The layer, the what, what, what he needed in that moment for his own healing, rehumanization, whatever, and what, um, and how it was received by the wider culture, just it felt like there was such a gulf there. And I don't remember offhand if he used the language of forgiveness. He did, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. I think it all started with him saying, I want you to know I forgive you. And that's what my brother would do. That's what my brother. Like that, that I think was how it all started. So I think about uh, Reverend Nadia Bowles Weber's um, talking about forgiveness as cutting the chains that bind you to another person. And I wonder, I don't know what was happening for him in that moment, but I wonder if that was a piece of it. Um, But whatever, we don't know how he experienced it and what brought him to make that choice. Um, But we do know that we were in a courtroom where we were trying to talk about justice and in the much many, like so many layered contexts of white supremacy, of police violence, of gun violence, of, you know, 500 years of uh, systemic oppression of black and brown bodies in this country, right? That all of that was being held in this courtroom where we were passing judgment and the our culture's desire to rush towards it's all good now. Everything's fine. Um, is so profound. And I think that's part of why American secular culture loves forgiveness so much is because it elides a profound grappling with not only the harm caused, um, which isn't to say, to has any judgment about what, um, what Jean's brother was going through in his heart, but the, media conversation, right? We allied the harm that was caused. We skip over the systemic questions. We stop asking larger questions of justice, as you indicated. Um, And we get to this quick fix um, thing. And I think, you know, I think there are a few reasons why America loves the forgiveness narrative, right? Some of it is... um, trying to figure out where to start this individualism, right? That we're not in a communal context that demands a coherent, cohesive process of amends, right? It's everybody's alone in their little box and there isn't that sense of a wider community having your back in the same way that, uh, you know, in Judaism, and we'll get there in a second, but Judaism is really big on repentance. We're really big on repairing harm. We're like, forgiveness, yeah, that's fine. That's a, that's a part of the process. We can talk about that. But we want to know about repentance. We want to know about whether or not the person who did harm 
is doing the work to become a different person. Did the person who did the bad thing, who caused the rupture, who caused the tear, are they owning the harm that they caused? Are they um, doing work to try to figure out why that happened and how they can become the kind of person who makes a different choice next time, right? Which is therapy, which is education, which is rehab, which is whatever, right? Um, and then are, is there amends? Like what could be done? What is the reparation that can be offered? And then we can talk about apology after you're like, you know, and then and forgiveness is like semi-optional in Judaism. And we're very clear that like the only person that can forgive you really is the person that you hurt. So in this case, like Bafamjian is dead. And that doesn't mean that there aren't secondary victims. Um, but when we talk about like where the laser focus goes for Judaism, we're looking at the person who did the harm. And I saw this media narrative rush to like, oh, she's been forgiven. It's all okay. It's like, well, how many other secondary victims were there? You know, did they all forgive? Like, yeah, do we as a society, we have a society have no space to offer any forgiveness. Um, you know, what about his mother? Like, it's clear that his mother was not there and she had no intention. I don't know if she has any intention of being there. She's working on it. She's having her process. But like, we like this sort of capitalist quick fix, um, you know, immediate gratification, move on to the next thing thing that is is so heavy in America's appetite was just so present there. Uh, you know, I think there are also obviously some theological reasons, right, why I could pick out some of the things in Christianity that cause forgiveness to be so part, such a part of the process. And um, whether or not it's, I mean, it's part of it is beautiful and it's powerful that Christianity focuses on forgiveness so much. And in some ways, um, the heart of it has gotten distorted to the point where it was a Bonhoeffer, I think, called it cheap grace, right, to run a run and cover over without having a deep process. So I think all of that was in there. It was a somewhat long answer to your question. No, it's great. And I, I think it's ironic, but it's also probably deeply related, is the same Christian culture that glorifies forgiveness, denies the, the acts of reparations or restitution being at all an important part of this whole puzzle, right? Which seems deeply problematic <laughs> in a number of ways, but it seems kind of like what you're pointing out is that's actually part of the elevation of the forgiveness thing is the the ignoring or the dismissal of the, the importance of uh, paying restitution. Right. Listen, you know, there are part, there are, there are powerful things in the Christian co concepts of forgiveness. And I think there are a lot of pieces of, of why that is the way it is. Um, some of it is, you know, in the New Testament, turning the other cheek and all that. And some of it is sort of deep theological things that have been, I think, probably distorted, is my guess. Um, I'm not a Christian theologian, so I'll let the Christian theologians comment on that. Um, but the focus on inner states over outer actions is, on the one hand, sort of a cornerstone of Protestantism, and on the other hand, um, can be distorted in a way that um, gets it to, it's like, well, what did you intend, right? People go straight from saying Bob did something racist. And it's like, Bob is not a racist. 
It's like, whoa, whoa, what are we talking about Bob's essence, Bob's inner states, right? If Bob's deep essence of selfhood is not intending to be racist, then he could not possibly have said anything racist, right? It's sort of this mentality we hear all the time. Someone gets, it says, you know, somebody did something racist and like this, this person does not have a racist bone in their body. And it's like, where are we talking about their bones, <laughs> right? And meanwhile, there's a victim over in the corner, you know, sometimes many, depending on the situation, that's like sitting in the corner hurt while we're sitting around debating Bob's inner states. I understand that there can be kind of an all or nothing mentality in there, but it does just naturally draw the focus away from who is hurt and what do they need, right? What do we need to have the person who is hurt be as fixed as possible? And if that person can never be fixed, then what other ways can we create more healing and more wholeness in a world that just got broken? Those are always my questions. You know, growing up as a as a Christian, and then in my twenties, you know, being a, a pastor, Christians often because we, we've been talking about individuals, right, and Bob, right, but but there's like you mentioned earlier, like there's like systemic stuff that is more than just something that one person can do. It's something mm. that has been a lots of people doing for a lot of time that that set this up this way so much so that we don't even know. Sometimes people don't even know they're doing it, right? Most of the time, people don't even know they're doing right. it, and that they're a part of this thing. Um, and so as I look at those and we talk about racism, we talk about the subjugation of women and LGBTQ people in, in American culture. Um, you know, I think in Christianity, we would often, often the, 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 the hope and the outlook was escape. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, this other, I remember being so encouraged by like, oh, this other place someday we're all going to like. You know, as a kid, it's like, I'll fly away, oh, glory, this right. hymn that we sang. And then growing up, it was like, though, oh. You have to admit. Yeah, well, it is. It is. Um, and it's got a nice little nice little ring to it. But um, but then, <laughs> you know, growing up and then realizing, like, it, it changed a bit growing up. It was like, okay, now it's about Jesus is going to come back and make everything right. But it's still like it wasn't about anything that, that I was doing. And I'm just wondering if you could uh, give us um, – from from Judaism, like, <laughs> help me think about this in a better way because th- that those haven't been helpful ways to approach life. They don't actually work when you go out into the world. Um, and so I know there's a lot of listeners of our show that want a better way to to approach this and th- with these ways that haven't been working for them. So this is one place where I, you know, Judaism, like every tradition, has its its places where it's got some stuff to work out, and you know. But I really, really believe that our stuff on repentance and repair gets it right. Hmm. I really, I mean, you know, I'm sort of staking a lot of my, my, my work right now on the belief that we've, we've got this. Let me just, let me just start with Maimonides. So Maimonides, uh, 12th century philosopher, legal thinker, all around brilliant guy, um, wrote, uh, a serious a code of Jewish law uh, basically building on stuff in the Talmud, stuff in the Torah. I can give you, trace you back if you want. We can go into the sort of the history of where he gets these laws of repentance. But by the time we're in the 12th century, he's laying out stuff that was found all over the place 
in uh, various points in the Jewish tradition, and he codified it into the laws of repentance. And this is really important for us. It's really important for us for a lot of reasons, but um, it becomes ritually relevant uh, when we talk about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, um, which in Judaism is the day when you can hit basically a big spiritual reset button. And all of the ways that you have been sinning, wrong, not right with yourself, not right with God, not right in your relationships, you can kind of have a chance to start over. But uh, an early rabbinic text teaches us Yom Kippur doesn't do bupkis. It does not do anything in your, your sins between another you and another person if you haven't fixed it with the other person. Hmm. Right? So you can repent. You can go, go to Yom Kippur, cry and weep about that bacon double cheeseburger you had. That's between you and God. Fine. You guys can figure it out. <laughs> but um, if you hurt somebody else and you go to Yom Kippur and you cry to God about how sorry you are that you hurt this person and you didn't fix it with them, then God's like, I don't want to hear from you, man. Like, go go work out your stuff. Come back later. And so there's a real urgency to figuring out how you make that stuff right. And Maimonides' stages of repentance, I think, are so good and so solid. First of all, we're talking about repentance, right? Who are we? Where's the spotlight? Is on the person who did the bad thing. Right? Nobody, you know, we're making sure we have plenty of places where it's like if you've been hurt, we make sure that you have what you need, you're taken care of. My money, you know, my money says if you physically hurt somebody, you have to pay for their medical, you have to pay for their time away from work and the work that they missed, you have to pay for their humiliation, you have to pay for their pain, and ooh, there's one more damage. There are five, but there are five different kinds of damages you have to pay if you hurt somebody. Right? So we're making sure that the other person is taken care of. But really, we want to know about the work that the person who did harm is doing. So step one, confession, right? which actually has some pre-steps. Because how do you fully own and fully and clearly articulate what bad thing you did if you're not clear on it? Right? If you don't know... Why that thing is, why people are telling you you said a racist thing, you got to go figure that out first, right? If you are feeling like there's some funkiness and you're not sure what the problem is or why it was a big deal, like you have to figure, you have to do some work. But then step one is naming really clearly what you did and fully owning your stuff. There's no, we don't care about your intention. We want to know, you know, like there's um, Dan Harmon was the showrunner for this TV show Community. And he sexually harassed one of his writers. And he, in his podcast, gave this beautiful public confession where he said, like, now I see, like, as much as I called myself a feminist, I could have done this stuff if I had actually, like, respected women. And I see now the ways that I treated her differently than my male staffers. And I see now the ways I lied to myself and I told myself these stories to justify what I was doing. Right? Like, real, like, clear own your stuff. Ideally, public accountability. It can be um, proportionate. Right? If you say something transphobic in a staff meeting, maybe you don't have to put it on Twitter, but you definitely have to own it in the staff meeting to all the people who heard it. Right? Um, if you went after somebody in a closed Facebook group, you have to at least clean it up in the closed Facebook group. Um, so that's step one, is own your stuff. 
You're not apologizing, just own it. Step two is starting to do the work to try to become different, right? Like what's the education you need? What's the therapy you need? What's the rehab you need? Step three is amends, right? What is the, what is the thing you can do to try to repair, right? Is it money? Are you donating time? Are you hooking up this person whose career you hurt with new connections, you know, can Louis C.K. be getting his victims' uh, meetings with his friends at Netflix? I mean, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, and sometimes you can't do amends to the person you hurt because maybe they're dead because you are a government that was complicit in the Holocaust. Maybe they're dead because, you know, your university was built with slave labor. Was, sorry, your university was built with the labor of enslaved people who, you know, are several hundred years gone, but their descendants are around. Like, there's systemic equality nonetheless. Like, what can amends look like and what should it look like in any situation? And then once you're already basically trying to sew up that, um, that tear in the cosmos that you made, then you can talk about apology. And by then, it's not like something your publicist wrote that you put on Instagram, like, I'm sorry if I, what I said made you uncomfortable, you know. But it's, you're saying it because you're actually sorry, because you finally get it. You understand how much harm you caused. And so going to the other person becomes important because you have a sense of obligation. And the language Maimonides uses is that you have to pacify them, right? Again, it centers the victim. So it's not, you know, you mumble sorry while you're looking at your shoes and saying, come on, I said I'm sorry. It's about looking at them and saying, like, what do you need to feel better? Maybe, and maybe it's nothing. And, you know, we can bring in our 21st century trauma-centered, trauma-informed lens and know that sometimes apologies aren't going to be the right thing, right? Sometimes your victim doesn't want to hear from you. But in a lot of situations, like, what does the victim need to feel pacified, given everything? And then you get to step five, which is what Maimonides says is complete tshuva, complete repentance, which is when you get the opportunity to do the same thing again, and you make a different choice. Hmm. And if you don't work out your stuff, you will always find your way back into that situation. Right? You're always going to find some way to be making a joke that makes people you who have less power than you feel a little uncomfortable. You're always going to find a way to be working out your garbage with the people you are dating. You're always going to, you know, you'll always find a way. Um, we went from, you know, enslaving people to lynching them to Jim Crow to mass incarceration, right? From genocide to the Trail of Tears to Wounded Knee to DAPL. Like, we find ways to repeat the same sins over and over again unless we do the work to become different. So that's, that's really where our, our focus is in Judaism. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. 
So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. Would it be fair to summarize the those five steps in terms of the sort of maybe two main goals of fixing what you've done to the to the best of your ability mm-hmm. and going through the work to make sure that you don't repeat the same mistakes? Is yes. that a fair summary? I think it's a pretty clear summary. Yeah, that was well done. You you just turned you know I've spent all this time reading and thinking about Maimonides and you just got it into one tweet. <laughs> Well, no, I think you know. Like I know, it's, it's I've good. actually seen. I can't. I can't see. I can't see the concise version anymore. So I'm glad you you can, but you got it. <laughs> right, but it, it's funny. I've seen multiple attempts over the last couple of years in various places in public life of people trying to instruct the basics of how to apologize, right? Or the basic, like it's it's become clear culturally. We have no idea what to do when we hurt other people yep. um, and the public examples we have just keep botching it over and over and over again. Like you mentioned, Louis CK and these others. Yep. Um, but part of the reason I like wanted to see if that summary is safe is like, this isn't that complicated, no. right? <laughs> like, no. It's not like we have to have a PhD in uh, repentance, right? To actually get at the heart of it. But it seems like we've sort of been distracted maybe by other things or we've, intentionally made something else the focus rather than these basics of fixing people or fixing hurt and not hurting people. Correct. We, all you have to do, and it's not all because it's such hard, painful work, right? I don't want to minimize that. It is really, mm-hmm. anytime you do it, it's hard and painful. Um, but you have to want things to be different. And I wonder if some of the reason why America is so bad at repentance is because part of facing up to some of the harm requires a change in power, right? For Louis C.K. to own his stuff, he needs to be open to the possibility that he is not going to have the same kind of power that he has had, right? And that he's going to have to shut up and make some room for some other people and lift up some other voices. Um, And that it's not all... You know, look at look at this man genius anymore, right? And he got that for so long, and he likes it. And for America, for the government, and I do believe the governments can do this work, right? Germany has done a not bad job. They're backsliding a little bit, but they've done some really good work post-Holocaust. You can look at Rwanda after the genocide. Like, countries have done real work of reckoning and engaging and saying, what happened here? And how can we make sure this never happens again? I think the reason America doesn't want to do it is because, I mean, you know, you see it so starkly in our political moment now, like the this sort of last gasp of the white capitalist patriarchy that may destroy us all, right? And a real reckoning would require sharing power and, and interrogating the systems of power that are in control right now. Um, and the people in power don't want to do that. Totally. One other thing I think is really profound about you bringing up Maimonides is, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners probably have never heard of Maimonides, have never heard of, you know, a lot of Jewish tradition and how that has developed over time. 
but they are all probably at least somewhat familiar with the Torah, and which was one of the key set of texts that Maimonides would have been working with, right, to get to these uh, these takes on repentance and, and confession. So can you talk to that a little bit of even the reparation offering in Leviticus and the requirements in the law and like some of that and how Maimonides could have gotten here where Christian tradition, or at least especially a lot of Protestant tradition, as you know, to Maimonides, the atonement can't be used to deny the significance of healing interpersonal systemic social stuff, right? Correct. But where we started this conversation was for a lot of Christians, that's exactly how it's functioning, right? Right. The the atonement piece is used to wash over the importance of that other stuff. So can you help us understand why Maimonides didn't go in that direction from the same text that, that we might point to? So the main place, as I sort of talked about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, as the trigger for this stuff. Um, And, you know, we're very clear that this repentance business should be happening all the time, by the way. Um, The Talmud says, repent one day before your death. And it's like, well, when do you know is going to be the last, how do you know when is going to be the last day of your life? You don't. So repent today, you know, (laughs) sort of the idea. it's, It's meant to be an ongoing process. But the trigger text is the stuff around Yom Kippur, um, Leviticus 16, where you've got Aaron, the high priest, is going into the Holy of Holies um, and performing a very elaborate ritual that is meant to do two things. One is to cleanse the Holy of Holies and the altar of ritual impurity, of Tum'ah, which is a ritual. It's not a moral state. People get the sort of impurity, purity stuff. People get a little bit bogged down. It's a technical state. It's not a, a moral state, right? Like you're impure does not mean you're bad. It means you touched a dead body. And if you're going to go do this other thing, you have to, you have to do, do it. It's, it's, um, there's a Jewish community in, in Boston that uh, uses the language of everyday state and elevated state, which I think is more accurate, right? To get you from this everyday death and leaking things and body state into something that is a little more special. So that when you're going to connect with God, you're starting off in this sort of fresher place. Um, and so this is the, the Yom Kippur ritual is first about cleansing the temple of the everyday stuff. Um, and number two, it is a confession of sins. And you see this, the whole ritual where you've got the two goats, and then there's the lots, and one of the goats gets sacrificed, and that's part of the, the impurity, impurity, blood getting slashed on the altar stuff. And then the other goat, uh, the high priest confesses his sins and the sins of his household and the sins of all Israel onto this goat and then sends it off to Azazel. Like, what's Azazel? We don't really know. It's the wilderness. It's the unknown. It's the untamed. It's basically like take all of our sins and take them someplace else. But that confession is so key, right? Because none of this is going to work if you can't really name clearly what the problem is. And so that's the starting place. And so then the the Mishnah, which is an oral tradition, 
expound that sort of tries to fill in some of the holes in the Torah so that we can figure out how to live this stuff in our everyday lives, starts saying, well, so then here's what that looks like now. And here's what Yom Kippur looks like for us now that we're in the, the sort of second temple era. The high priest would do this and then the high priest would do this and you're sort of and and they're like, oh yeah, and the repentance thing, like your sins aren't gonna get cleansed. The high priest confessing on the goat only works if you fixed it with your fellow. The high priest confessing that you did something bad to your fellow and sending it off to the wilderness isn't going to do you any good if you haven't actually repaired that breach. So we follow the thread into repair. I've got a, a thousand questions. Uh, okay, I, I love this. Um, and I, I also think this connects with some other stuff I've seen you bring up in your work, which is um, the long tragic history in Christian theologizing and Christian culture of anti-Semitism. And, and I think it connects, uh, and I want to hear your, your thoughts on this, the, the way that it connects in, in many ways to this conversation is how so much of Christian tradition has essentially stereotyped the Jewish people as as legalists that are sort of going up against this whole forgiveness Christian you know higher principle, uh, which to me has been one of the ways that I've very clearly seen that lead to scapegoating and uh, and this anti-Semitism. Do you see that connection and and just speak to that for a bit? Yeah, that's a very smart sort of tying together. I think I think you're not wrong. Yes, the story, and it's so interesting, as we're having this conversation today, it is both the one-year secular anniversary of the massacre uh, at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, hmm. um, when a white supremacist came in and slaughtered 11 Jews in synagogue. And it is also the day in the lectionary, I learned this today, um, where there's a reading from Luke that's one of the stories about the Pharisees. And I had this moment um, uh, earlier today when I, I sort of was like, okay, Christian pastor friends, you have an opportunity to not do harm here and not tell a story about the legalistic Jews who don't get the point. Jesus was a Pharisee. Like they were having an intracommunal debate um, so this is all very, it feels very fresh, like today of all days. Yeah, and I think this, this story that gets told so often is, that I, I, I hear a Christian narrative that is like, you know, Christianity is about love and forgiveness and Jews are like focused on these legalistic, ritualistic details and totally missing the point when the point is love and forgiveness and being in the flow. I think A that belies a real ignorance of Jewish law and what it is and how we do it. It is the monastery in which we live so that our every action can be directed towards the holy. Um, and we think what we say and do matters. Um, and it's not different from, you know, uh, Episcopalian debates about like how to do Eucharist. It's like, well, there's a right, somebody thinks there's a right way and somebody else thinks there's a wrong way and they're fighting about it. Like that's Jewish law. Like there's a, there's a, way, if you want to be in the flow of the holy, then what you do matters. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think this lack of understanding about what it means to, uh, to drink the water of Torah, really, there's a lot of flow here too. 
Um, and to be in a place where there's also like joyous debate and dialogue and multivocality and there's not one right answer and, and all of that. And that's part of the monastery we live in. Yeah, it's been used as a, as a cudgel against us. And they're like, you know, well, why don't you just forgive? Noise, I think, is probably part of that as well. Whereas I think for Jews, it's like, fix yourself, right? I mean, we've got a lot of laws. We've got all of these laws of repentance. We have a lot of laws of rebuke, a.k.a. if you see somebody is not acting as they should in the world, you need to call them out on it. And there's a way to do it that is appropriate and holy, and there's a way to do it that is tearing down and shaming. And you should do it in the way that allows them to become better. And Maimonides also says, and if they're doing, you know, these this kind of really bad thing, then just let it, you know, throw the book at them, like let them have it. Um, that there's a place for calling someone to the carpet, even in a public way. But like we spend a lot of time figuring out how to get the harm stopped. And we have actually very little unforgiveness. And I think that's intentional. We say that it's good to forgive. We say you shouldn't hold grudges. Um, we also say that there are certain categories of harm that, like, you don't, you know, if somebody, uh, slander is one of the examples that gets used. Like, somebody harmed you in an irreparable way. Like, even if they did shuva, even if they did the work of repentance, shuva, by the way, means return. It means coming back to the place where you were supposed to be all along. Um, it's not repent. It's like get back on the, on the path. Um, but even if, you, even if the, the person who harmed you repented, like if they harmed you in an irreparable way, you don't owe them anything. You may choose to forgive, and that may be a wonderful healing thing for you to do, maybe good for you. But we live in a, a world of, are you obligated? Are you exempt? You know, what, are you required? Are you not required? What's the, and um, are you forbidden? And in the world of forgiveness, it's like there's a lot of, there's not a lot of language of obligation because it, what the victim needs is centered. Right? And maybe forgiveness is the right thing, and maybe it's not, and maybe that's okay. You know, I, I tend to think a lot of this stuff flows organically. Like if the person who did the harm takes their responsibility in a really full, holistic way, it's a lot easier for the victim to get to that place of saying, you know what, okay, I do forgive you. Right? If there's that I-thou encounter where the person who did the harm is able to to hold what they did and see it and get it. And the victim can often then look back too. Um, but we're not standing in front of the victim going like, no. And there's definitely, we don't even talk about forgiveness if the perpetrator hasn't done the work. If the perpetrator hasn't repented. We don't like, if you forgive, great, whatever. But that's you, do, do your thing. But we're, we don't, we're not gonna ask anything of you for sure. So, you know, I think about like restorative justice circles sometimes do really powerful work where there's so much healing happens on the side of the perpetrator that the victim can also get their healing too. I think if that's what's meant to happen. I've got a, maybe a couple questions that are like sort of on the periphery of this overall conversation and we'll just do some fast ones. So you mentioned something that I'm sure a couple people uh, grabbed onto, but just mentioned in passing. 
the idea that Jesus was a Pharisee amongst mm-hmm. a common grouping, yep. uh, having conversations that would have been popular debates uh, yep. of his time. Yep. Give us a little snippet. So, okay. Little, let's, let's, let's do a little Second Temple history. Um, three main categories of Jews running around this. I mean, there were, a lot of, there were a lot of different kinds of Jews running around the Second Temple, but three dominant kinds. Pharisees, uh, Fulshim, we call them, Sadokim, Sadducees, and Essenes. Um, the Sadducees, easiest to deal with. They were like connected to the temple and the power of the temple and the priestly class and authority and centralization uh, and hierarchy. Um, the Essenes were basically like mystics off wandering. Uh, we know they, the Dead Sea Scrolls came from Essenes, um, sort of ascetics. Um, and there are people who speculate that Jesus was an Essene, but it just seems so clear to me that he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the third category. These were people for whom the oral Torah, the Mishnah that I mentioned earlier, the set of this oral tradition uh, that helped you figure out what the Torah was saying and what it means for our lives. Um, like, what's it all about? If the Torah says, keep Shabbat, it's like, well, what does that mean? How do we do it? How do we know we're doing it right? And so you've got the Mishnah, this oral tradition, was like, here are 39 categories of things you don't do on Shabbat. You don't bake, you don't write, you don't plow, you don't um, plant, you don't erase, da-da-da-da. And then we can figure out from there, like, well, you know, if I do, if I drag a chair in the in the dirt. Is that plowing or is that an accident? And again, it's part of this conversation about Jewish law. Like it's about figuring out how to live in, um, in connection with God and to have, make sure you're feeling like it's the right thing. Um, and so how to do that and what it looked like was a subject of profound debate and this multivocality, this plural, plurality, this sense that there isn't you know, one absolute right answer, but there are a lot of ways to think about it, and we have to sort of hash out what the right answer might make sense to be. Um, that was that was the Pharisees. They're like, okay, let's get into it. Like, if you drag the chair, are you plowing? Let's talk. And it was joined with joy and delight. And like any community, it was full of people who were, you know, different levels of intensity and intention. Um, it seems really clear to me that Jesus was a Pharisee. The do unto others as you would have others do unto you, right? Hillel, uh, the great sage Hillel, the Pharisee, Second Temple Pharisee Hillel, um, said, "Do not do the whole of Torah is do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you," right? Uh, Jesus talks about that the the heart of Torah is um, you should love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's Leviticus. So did Rabbi Kiva. Like, he was part of a Pharisaic conversation. His rhetorical strategies were Pharisaic. And I think it's really clear that when he was calling out some of these guys, it was an inside conversation. Just like, okay, I was, I was ordained in the conservative movement. Right? That's my denomination. Not politically conservative, ritually conservative. And so when I complain about uh, what's happening in the conservative movement and what my union is doing... That's one kind of conversation. If an Orthodox Jew wants to tell me that I'm not a valid or legitimate Jew because I'm a conservative rabbi, that sounds really different, right? And if a Christian wants to say Jews suck, that sounds really, really different, right? 
a Jew who keeps kosher telling another Jew who keeps kosher that they're missing the point if they're eating off styrofoam plates is an in-group conversation, right? A Jew calling out another Jew for violating labor laws in Jewish law. It's in-group conversation. Me, you know, talking about sexism or homophobia in the Jewish community is an in-group conversation. I believe that that's what Jesus was doing. It's very clear to me. Um, and when you understand that, it changes how you understand who he was talking about and what he was saying. Um, and the other note about this that I think is important is that the Gospels were written after Jesus' death. And so you have different people writing down what pieces of the story they had from their lenses and their perspectives and their agendas. And we know Mark was one of the earliest, but even by, already by 70 when Mark was writing, um, the split between Jews and Jewish Christians, which then became Christians, was already happening. And so, you know, how you write about someone with whom you are romantically involved when you are together and how you write about them after the breakup is going to sound different. And so I think that piece of it needs to be in there too. That some of the pain and frustration and heartache and anger and resentment that's happening in real time as these gospels are getting written, it may, may be uh, somewhere in, in which stories get told, what language gets used to tell them. Even somebody who's intending to write a fairly straightforward narrative may not be writing a fairly straightforward narrative. Um, and so I think that's part of the soup too. You know, and, and, and people who were part of this split as it was happening had an incentive to want to distance Jesus from the Pharisees, right? Because we, the Christians now, are distancing ourselves from those guys. And so we want to distance Jesus from those guys too. So I think that's part of the, I think that's in the soup too. Yeah. Isn't that one of the, I mean, one of the considerations in scholarship is it's, it's just the gospel of John that uses the Greek word for more generally Jew mm-hmm. uh, as Jesus opponents, which has been, I think something that public Christian facing people just have to be incredibly conscious of and careful with and responsible over uh, what that is, what that means, how that would be heard today, right? But it's, it's one in the, the synoptic gospels, which are typically considered to be written earlier, you see Pharisee, and in the Gospel of John, you have this, uh, this word that people have debated over why it was used, but it's essentially uh, a Greek word for more generally uh, referring to a Jew or Judean. Yep. It's all very complicated. I know that's like even a scary concept for probably a lot of our listeners. But as you mentioned, today is a day in the Christian lectionary for, for those people who are part of uh, lectionary style churches where <laughs> like we have to take responsibility for uh, especially how we talk, right? Um and how we uh, say things that might sound really good and preachy and Christian-y in one sense, uh, but if a sizable portion of listeners are going to run with that in a particular direction, uh, it's some scary stuff. It is. It is. And just to reiterate like what you were saying and to build on it, John was writing late, and so his relationship to the Jewish community was going to be very, very different. 
of the Synoptic Gospels. And no matter what the, the intention, no matter what was in the soup when the Synoptic Gospels were being written, and I think even then you can see a distancing, an interest to distance Jesus from his roots in conversation with his Pharisaic peeps. Um, any which way, we have to remember that the accusation that Jews are Pharisees, that Jews are legalistic, that Jews are hypocrites, the using Pharisee and hypocrite as synonyms, which they are not, um, all of that has been used for the last 2,000 years to murder us, to expel us from country after country after country, pogroms, the Inquisition, the Holocaust, um, the massacre of 11 people one year ago today in the Tree of Life Synagogue, the significant uptick in anti-Semitism in America today, right? Like the Pharisee, legalistic, hypocrite Jew thing has been used to slaughter us for centuries and centuries and to scapegoat us and to say it's okay to harm us and to, to claim that we are running some secret cabal and that have, we have all this power, um, which... Uh, astute listeners will note, was used for a long, long time in the Middle Ages when we had no power whatsoever. Um, it was always a way for people in power to deflect criticism away from them, up through and until Trump using globalist and saying Soros is, is funding the caravan. It's the same tricks. And so even if there, even if everything in the New Testament was totally neutral, which I don't believe it was, and maybe that's okay, and maybe we can have an honest conversation about that. But even if it's all totally neutral, the history following the New Testament is not. And so for people who care about creating a world with more wholeness and less pain and less hate, and who care about real live human Jewish people who would like to be not gunned down when they're in the middle of praying to God, um, Handling those words with extreme care is really important. Hmm. Nate, I have one final question, but did you want to? Um, I had kind of a uh, a funny question based on sort of what I said earlier. Like, have you ever had a Christian try to evangelize to you? <laughs> have I? Um, many, many times. From the one who tried to trick me when I was in uh, sleepaway camp, uh, age probably 11. Uh, you know, they took us to a, a fair or something, and they took us on a field trip. Um, many, many times through the interfaith um, meeting I went to, the interfaith retreat I went to when I was in rabbinical school. Um, that was interesting. Uh, the guy who tried to, uh, I was waiting outside BART, talking to San Francisco. It was the night before Purim starts. It was our big, fun, bonkers, ridiculous, also very serious um, kind of carnival holiday. It's like Jewish Mardi Gras, except not. But it is a costume holiday. And this was the Bay Area. And I was in my 20s. And so I was waiting for a friend decked, you know, rhinestones glued to my face, kind of sparkly. And some dude tried to come over and, and engage me. And... Um, 
I started spitting Torah at him. I was like, well, let me tell you about why I'm dressed this way. And let's talk about, you know, the book of Esther and why God's name isn't mentioned in the book of Esther. And, you know, and he'd say something. And I'm like, well, actually, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. And that was fun. On Bart? On Bart. In front of Bart. And, um, <laughs> and now, you know, on Twitter, I get it all the time. Um, it happens a lot. Supersessionism is real, right? This idea that um, this theology that holds that Christianity replaced Judaism and is, you know, new Coke is better than old Coke, um, except neither beautiful, powerful, amazing faith tradition is a soft drink. Um, and I feel like I, I, you know, I feel like I need to do the, like, some of my best friends are Christian, but actually, like, my closest friends on the planet are Christian. I have some of my most formative books are Christian, you know, uh, Julian of Norwich, Thomas Merton. Like, I'm, you know, like, I, I have a lot of love. I, I got into this stuff. I got into religion because I was following around the New Testament guy at my college. Um, and I just took all his classes and started, you know, like, forced him to make me TA, be his TA. Um, I was like, it's me again. Um, like, I have a lot of love for Christianity. Um, and some of Jesus' followers haven't quite figured out that Judaism is its own fully grown independent tradition that has its own legitimate path to the divine and that it stands on its own two feet and doesn't need any help. Awesome. Okay. I have one last question that if we all had the time, it could we could take two weeks to answer it. Uh, so, so whatever form you want to give it. But it seems to me it relates to every part of this conversation is, you know, even there wasn't one second temple Judaism. There were different versions, right? There were different subsects uh, of Judaism. Um, and then we've talked about Maimonides. We've talked about the Mishnah and the Talmud. So can you sort of help uh, our listeners understand one of the things we've been wrestling through individually and as a podcast is is there are schools that want to move forward creatively in this, you know, to use the term progressive, make creative reinterpretations, adaptations to fit the world that we know today. Mm-hmm. And there are others that use texts, and in Protestant Christianity, that's using uh, the Protestant Bible as texts mm-hmm. to, to keep us going backward. And it seems like within the very long, complicated history of Judaism, you have both things happening together in tension. Are they both happening? Like, are there, are there disagreements about, you know, which direction we should be moving? You know, but all this, like, even the Pharisees were trying to reinterpret uh, or, or make sense of how to apply Torah to their day, right? Yep. A couple thousand years ago. And in Jewish history, that's meant the creation of new texts that have been sort of modern adaptations in some sort, right? So maybe just speak to some of that as, as best you can. I started laughing when you said, are there times when people have been in disagreement? Yes. Um, <laughs> mostly that's what we do. Um, often it's joyous disagreement, right? We, we talk about um, disagreements for the sake of heaven. Like mm. it's baked in. Um, and yeah, it's always been, Judaism has been constantly evolving and constantly holding these two poles of 
rooted in the text and innovation and how much to innovate and when and which pieces of the text. And um, I mean, the Talmud is the first profound place, the sort of the codification of the Mishnah and the Talmud, this birth of moving to the Pharisee. Well, no, it wasn't even the first, right? The first time Judaism started to innovate radically was during the Babylonian exile, after the destruction of the first temple. It was like, that's when prayer, as we understand it today, really started, because there was no temple. And then, after the destruction of the second temple, massive crisis, what do we do now? What does it mean for us to serve God now? And rabbinic Judaism was profoundly radical, um, but in always holding Torah. But like, you know, the rabbis would play with their readings, you know. They would say, an eye for an eye, mamash, like literally, you should give an eye for an eye, or mamon, or like maybe you just pay damages. And then they'd go off on their happy little, you know, streak about what is it, what are the damages you give for certain kinds of injuries? Because obviously you're not going to be poking somebody's eye out, right? There's a sense always that every generation receives the Torah anew, and we have to figure out how to interpret what we have with integrity, but we're always adding. Maimonides took a lot of, I mean, you know, Maimonides, it's like, well, you know, this is this piece of Talmud, this is this piece of Talmud, he took a lot, a lot, a lot of the authoritative texts of his day. He rearranged them, caused a firestorm, added his own flourishes, caused a firestorm. People like burned his stuff in his day. And then, you know, a generation later and a generation later and a generation later. And then these people took this mystical insight and they blew it up over here. And then these people said, no, you need to do it this way. And we've been always trying to hold this tension of when and how to engage with the moment today, right? And, the, the, and with integrity and in a way that, that, that speaks truth to the tradition that we know. Um, you know, um, what does Judaism say about in vitro fertilization is kind of one version of it. What does Judaism say after the Holocaust, which was another major crisis, is another. Um, you know, how can Judaism be open and loving and affirming to trans folks? Oh, wait, there are six different gender and sex categories mentioned in the Mishnah. Seven, actually. Um, you know, there's no precedent here, but look, there's precedent here. So what do we You know. So it's always an evolving, growing conversation. And there are always going to be people who are on the more radical edge. And there are always going to be people holding down for tradition. And, you know, the 16th century Kabbalists were like, way radical, so much innovation, ridiculous amounts of innovation, so many weird things they brought in. And now all of these things, well, a lot of them, are considered like really standard. Like, of course we do these prayers, these things, you know, before Friday night service. Of course we do... This thing, the Seder on the holiday of the trees. Of course, we stay up all night re reading Torah on the night before of this holiday. Like these things that are totally normal, normative Jewish practice were like, you know, very, very avant garde at some point. Um, but I think that's the process, right? It's a filtering process. And you try to, every generation tries to figure out what they've inherited and how they can pass it forward, knowing what they know today to the next generation with integrity, and the next generation are the ones who get to figure out what of mom and dad and 
other mom and, you know, grandparents and siblings and everybody, like what of, of their inheritance they want to take, right? Everybody offers something new and every generation takes something off the table. And so our work now is to try to figure out how to bring light and love and connection to people. I love that. And that feels like a very real and human description of what actually happens in life, whether it's our religious life or just how we, we take the things we were taught and we learned just in the world even. And, right. and hey, I like that bit. I think this one, we can make that better. Hey, you know, my I grew up thinking recycling was stupid. And now I, we're realizing the damage of that, you know, just other things, right. even just in science or, or whatever. As you're talking, I was getting jealous of a group, a religious group of people, religious heritage, where that is um, okay to disagree. It's okay to have multiple perspectives. Um, Because as you're probably aware, in in the Christian tradition, especially in the last, I think, I don't know, maybe 50, 100 years, it's almost as if that tradition acts as if they have the final truth. And as if they've always had that that final interpretation. I'm going, well, wait, didn't you change on the slavery thing? Didn't you change on the earth is flat thing? Didn't you change on, you know, and, uh, and we do that a lot on the show. We kind of try to poke at that stuff and say like, no, it don't, don't say you're not, you're not interpreting the Bible. Don't say you're not interpreting that you don't have an interpretation of this. You know, you're, you're, you're missing the, you're missing that you are interpreting based on your culture, based on your, uh, your heritage based on your upbringing, based on your socioeconomic standing, based on your gender. And, um, and it's like, there's often like trying to hide that, trying to mask over the fact that that's actually happening. Anyway, that's just right. sort of a, I'm going to step off my soapbox now. Yeah. I mean, you know, what can I say? I, I know how that happened and, and I really love the multivocality of Judaism. I mean, you know, how we read Torah is with something called a mikroot gudolot, a big reading. And so what you have, you have this big fat book that is, you know, for Genesis, it'll be like this one really fat volume and you open it up and you will have the first verse of Torah, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and like one verse, maybe two. And then you'll see a bunch of little boxes of text in various sizes of fonts. Um, Some of them hurt your eyes, but lots of little squares of text. And this one is Rashi, our friend from 11th century France, telling what he thinks is going on. And this one is um, Ibn Ezra, who's over in Spain, talking about what he thinks it means. And then you have my, you know, Maimonides saying what he thinks it means. And you have Nachmanides saying of Maimonides, that guy is a fool, he does not know what he's saying. It's absolutely this, you need to read it with this mystical lens. And so you have on one page, all of these guys, and they're all guys, right? I mean, this is part of every generation receives the Torah anew, is that now some of the brilliant minds that are able to teach Torah uh, are women and non-binary people and people of all various genders. And, and so you have Maimonides uh, and Nachmanides are fighting it out on the page. And, and you know, Sforno and Ibn Ezra are offering in their two cents. And all of these guys are saying like these are this is, this is all Torah, right? This is all in my book that I get in my ultra orthodox, you know, neighborhood in the bookstore where, you know, people have like the most strict understandings of um Judaism, most fundamentalist understandings of Judaism. And even there, there's a sense that of course there are a lot of different ways you can understand what this is, because there are 70 faces of Torah. 
when I turn it and turn it and turn it again and everything is in it. Um, and your voice matters, you know? I wish that for everybody. That's beautiful. Well, Rabbi, thank you for using your voice, uh, both on this podcast and uh, in the larger work that you're doing. Uh, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys so much for, for letting me come play. Yeah, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Anything for our listeners specifically uh, that you're working on or any of your books that you'd want to point them to if they're interested in learning more from you? Sure. Um, my book on how I went from being a grumpy atheist to a now rabbi and all the confusing, winding, punk rock, um, you know, late 90s story in between is called Surprised by God. My book on spirituality and parenting is a spiritual practice. It's called Nurture the Wow. Um, and I mouth off on Twitter a lot, so you can find me there too. All right, we'll post links to everything in the notes to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Thank you.